Amen. Yeah, well, it's good to, good to be with everyone today, one way or another, right? Via the internet, I guess. But uh, the Lord is good. Yeah, so <clears throat> today we're going to be touching on something that uh, we've actually hit, hit into this a little bit from different angles over the last couple weeks. Uh, but we're going to hit it head on today. Um, and specifically, you know, it's, it's a dilemma a significant question and dilemma that a lot of times we face even as believers, unbelievers as well. Uh, in fact, this dilemma, this <clears throat> difficult question is one that uh, has actually caused some people to backslide over this. Uh, so we really want to take some time to take a look at this. Um, <clears throat> and what, I, what the problem is this, the crux of the problem is, you know, if God is loving why is there so much evil, pain, and suffering? That's really a, a big question that I think a lot of people have. And I think at times like this, that question arises again. Uh, recently, uh, Pastor Mike was telling me that there was some, uh, I think it was an Anglican bishop or something out in England who was saying, we have, you know, we have no idea why God would let something like this happen. You know, what's going on? It's just confusing, yada, yada. And, um, and really... John Piper was taking umbrage with that and saying, actually, we, we have some good reasons to know why these things do happen. And so we're going to look at that today. We're going to try to take a, hit this head on and realize there really are some very good explanations. Uh, this doesn't mean that um, we're by any means going to be able to cover everything or even know everything. Uh, obviously, we don't, right? But uh, there are some really good uh, answers to this pressing question. And the dilemma ends up primarily because we, we face this dilemma because we make three uh, assumptions about God, uh, and these assumptions are based on things that the church universal has been teaching for 2,000 years, uh, and even before that, the rabbis. I mean, these are three key things about God himself, and number one is this, God is all-powerful. Uh, 58 times in the scripture, God himself describes himself as the Lord Almighty, uh, and that term almighty, Shaddai, it means the most powerful. Uh, Pantokrator, the Greek word, it means he who holds sway over all things. In fact, it's the Greek word for the word omnipotent. In fact, in some Bible translations, it's actually translated omnipotent. And so that's what it means. God is all-powerful. We, we believe that. Uh, number two, an aspect of, of God being all-powerful is that he is omniscient as well, and that just means he's all-knowing. Psalm 147.5 says this, great is the Lord and abundant in power. And then it talks about this power, and it says his understanding is beyond measure. In other words, he, he understands everything. He has limitless understanding. Uh, John is quite blunt about it in 1 John 3.20. John just says this, God knows everything. <laughs> okay, that's, that's pretty straightforward, right? Psalm 139.4, even before word is on my tongue, you know it all together. Uh, and so God knows, he even knows, there's even evidence in the scripture that he knows what people would do in, any, in given situations that actually never happen. Uh, we see that in the story of David and Kayla in, in 1 Samuel chapter 23, uh, verses 10 through 13. So, uh, so we see that aspect of God being all-knowing. And then we also see, thirdly, that God is love, right? Scripture teaches that, that God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And so the problem goes kind of like this. 
If God is all-knowing, then he knew before creating the world that our world would have evil. And we see evidence of that in the book of Revelation that it's, where it says that uh, Jesus was the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth. So in other words, God knew there was going to be trouble. He knew there was going to be evil. He knew there was going to be a fall. He knew there was going to be sin in the world. And so he made this plan. He had this plan that Jesus would be this lamb slain from the foundations of the world. So so he knew there was going to be evil in the world, but since God is perfectly loving and he surely is not going to do evil himself, he, he, he would want to pervert, prefer or prevent evil from ever happening. Uh, and since he's all-powerful, we would think that he could prevent evil from ever happening, right? And so, so that's the dilemma people face. You know, he is, wouldn't he surely want to prevent it in the first place? Why? Do we need to have Jesus die on the cross? Why, why just never have evil at all? Why can't we just never have evil? Now, at first glance, it, it may seem that God has no good reason for creating a world that, that has this kind of stuff in it, this evil, pain, and suffering in it. And at first glance, it may appear to be that case. But, you know, it's, it may not necessarily be that way. First of all, we need to remember one thing, that God... We'll, we'll never do something false. He'll only do things that are true, right? Jesus said, I am the truth. So God does not do falsehoods. He doesn't do false things. He doesn't make square circles. He doesn't make married bachelors, right? I mean, he doesn't do things like that. He can't do a falsehood. He only does what is true. Now, God actually made us as free creatures with a free will. But see, here's the catch. If we really have a free will, if Satan and the angels truly have a free will, then God cannot force us to do the right thing. He can't force us to freely choose to do the right thing. That's a, that's a fact, right? He cannot do that. And it may be, and this is, this is you know, somewhat speculative, but we can infer, and it may very well be the case, that that any world that God would create with free people, free angels, angels free to choose what they want to do, people free to choose if they're going to do good or bad, any world, it might be that it would inevitably end up being the case that evil would result in such a world where people are actually free to freely choose. It may very well be the case. And if that's true, then moral evil is not God's fault, but it's the fault of creatures who freely choose to do the wrong thing. It's actually what it would be. In fact, even some of the natural evils may come about because of that. Romans 8, 9, 19 through 21 talks about the fact that, <clears throat> that even all of creation is actually groaning. It's actually suffering right now waiting for the revelation of the sons of God, of people who, are, who want to do the right thing, who are rightly connected with God. And so we see that, that perhaps even many, many, perhaps all natural evils are ultimately uh, the cause by that. So secondly, and this is a, another important issue, we're really not in a position to say that God has no good reason for allowing some pain or some suffering or evil to happen, right? We, we don't, we're not in a good position to say that. We simply are not all-knowing and omniscient. We, we simply don't understand that thing, right? Remember what 1 John 3.20 says, God knows everything, right? We don't, right? 
And so, so that's the bottom line. We just are not in a position of doing that. I mean, and we talked about this the last couple weeks, right? Jesus dying on the cross is a classic example, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It doesn't make any sense, right? And, and in his humanity, Jesus felt that way. And a lot of times we feel that way. Like, what is going on? This makes no sense, God. Why are you allowing this to happen? And yet we know there was a very clear purpose and reason for Jesus dying on the cross. It was very necessary. And so again, we just can't know. The bottom line is, just give you an everyday example, pain can actually many times lead to good. Pain can actually lead to a greater good. I'll give you an example. Let's, let's imagine, for example, uh, that if, I, if we were actually meeting in the church here today, let's imagine, put on our imaginary caps, right? We're actually all meeting in the church here today, and I say to you, hey guys, by the way, on your way out the door when you leave today, there's going to be somebody at the door, and they're going to be poking you with a really long needle, it's a long, sharp needle. They're going to poke you, and it's going to hurt for, for a few seconds. Uh, but just be sure to make sure you get poked in the arm on your way out the door. You would go to me, what? Like, like I want to get hurt? Like, you want, what, are you trying to give me tetanus or something? I mean, what are you, what are you doing? That's ridiculous, Bob. Why do you have somebody stationed at the door to poke me with a long needle? Okay, well, what if I added a little bit of information Oh, I forgot to mention, it's a COVID-19 vaccine. You'd go, oh, yeah, okay, go ahead. I'm willing to get poked in the arm and endure some pain because of the greater good that will come about by this vaccine. But now let's imagine for a second that you're two and a half years old, and I tell you that. Would you possibly be able to understand? No. I mean, I, I can remember when my son was about two and a half years old and we had to take him to the hospital. And I don't even remember what the issue was, but I remember they needed to take his blood. And there he is looking at me, my trusting son, and I have to hold him down while they're poking his hand with a needle. And they couldn't get, they couldn't get the blood in there and they had to poke and they had to re-poke and they had to re-poke. And it seemed like an eternity. And he's looking at me like, who are, who are you, you evil man? You know, why are you allowing me to go through this pain? You know? And I just wanted to get better. And there's no way I can explain to him what I'm up to. Why? Because he simply did not have the capacity to understand. And that's the way it is with us, brethren. And we simply do not have the capacity that God has to always understand what's going on or why things are going on the way they are. We just simply don't have it, right? <clears throat> I mean, and we, we see this in the story of Job, don't we? I mean, Job wants to know, God, why are you allowing this? And God basically doesn't tell him, right? But what does God do? God takes Job aside, and, and he does talk to him eventually, and he says, okay, Job, let me tell you, let me, you know, do you, let me just show you the creation stuff that I made. Like, do you have any idea how I did this? Do you have any idea how I did that? Do you have any idea how I, and he talks about all these aspects of creation, and Job is going, I have the faintest idea. <laughs> I mean, I have the faintest idea. And God's like, and you actually want me to explain the why that you're going through this? Job, this is so beyond your capacity to understand. And one of the things we know now that we know from the story of Job that I don't think Job quite grasped, it was a very important thing, and that is one of the things that we learned from the story of Job is that 
people sometimes suffer who don't necessarily deserve it, like they weren't necessarily doing anything wrong, and they're suffering, right? The other thing we see in the story of Job is that Satan, even though Satan was involved in Job's affliction, he actually couldn't do anything to, to, to Job without God's permission. And that's important, right? If we trust in the character and the nature of God, we can realize that even when Satan's involved, God overrules even Satan. God can work good out of even ugly, terrible situations where even Satan is involved in it, right? So there's some very important things that we learn from that. But the bottom line is one of the key things we learn is we just sometimes aren't going to be able to figure it out. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a reason. It just means it's beyond our capacity, right? Thirdly, God teaches us in his word. He gives us clear doctrines that actually explain very concretely why, in some cases, we are seeing pain and suffering, and yet God is still good, right? He's still loving, right? We have doctrines in the word of God that really make that clear there's good reasons for this, right? Now, we may not always be able to identify the particular reason in a particular situation, but that doesn't mean that there aren't some really good reasons. And we've got some. We've got some really, really powerful reasons that are taught in the scripture that really explain a lot of this stuff. Uh, I'll just give you, we're going to look at several of them here. Number one, human beings are actually in a state of rebellion against God and his purposes. We're actually rebelling against a good God. That's kind of the, the, the way human beings are in general. That's the general trend is rebellion against God. It says in the scripture, Romans 3, 10 through 12, and also verse 23, no one seeks God. All have turned aside and together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And, and Paul here is describing the situation of a human being apart from the grace of God. Even unbelievers, when they do something good or right, it's because of their God-given conscience, right? It's because God is at work in their heart, even in the, in the heart of an unbeliever, and that's what we call common grace, right? But the bottom line is, because we are in a state of rebellion as, as a human race, we actually expect there to be evil in the world. We expect it. This is what the, the scripture really explains to us, that we ought to expect it. Secondly, Satan, demons, and fallen angels are also in a state of rebellion against God. And they're working really hard to keep people from God. In fact, Jesus described Satan. He said he's a liar, he's a thief, and he's a murderer. So that explains a lot of lying, a lot of thieving, and a lot of murder going on in the world, doesn't it? We've got Satan in the background provoking people, stirring people up, getting them to do things even worse than they would on their own. He and his minions are doing that kind of thing, right? Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 5.8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's just looking to hurt people. That's what he's into doing. And so it shouldn't shock us again why we see evil in the world, sometimes such evil that we just have a hard time comprehending it. We've got, there are forces that we don't see that are involved that are stirring up evil on the planet all the time. And so that's another reason why we see evil in the world. And it's a supernatural evil in that case. So it can, it can even be involved in things that we can just never really see, even involved in disease, right? That's clear from what Jesus taught. Number three, 
the chief purpose of life is not temporal happiness, but actually the knowledge of God and the knowledge of God for e- forever, for eternal life. John 17.3 talks about that. This is eternal life, that they might know you and, and, uh, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, right? The bottom line is, brethren, that is the chief purpose of our life. It's not the temporal happiness. We're really not God's pets, okay? I think a lot of times people, even Christians, we can think that, okay, we're just, you know, we think of our, our little pets, our little animals, you know, my wife's, you know, well, we have this cat at home, and uh, my wife just loves that cat. Oh, she dotes all over that thing. She doesn't want to th- see that thing suffer at all, right? And so she's just doting over that little animal, right? And we think that that's kind of the way God ought to be uh, with us. And, and like he ought to make like our lifespan here, you know, for the cat, it's, you know, 15 years. For us, it's 70, 80, 90, however many years, 100, whatever. <clears throat> we think, okay, God, it just ought to be all like smooth and everything amazing. And God's saying, that's not my chief goal for you, right? That's, that's clearly not what the scripture teaches. The knowledge of God is an incomparable good and it outweighs any suffering or any pain that we may have to endure. And I want to share a story which really illustrates this, that it really is true that the knowledge of God is the key, uh, the key good that God is really trying to get us to, to experience. He wants us to come to know him and he wants us to come to know him forever. William Lane Craig was sharing a story uh, not too long ago uh, about a friend of his, a college professor, a Christian college professor. And this brother used to go, he made it his practice to regularly go to nursing homes uh, to visit shut-ins in nursing homes who couldn't get out and who who didn't, you know, who who just had, were just kind of there, kind of stuck. And he wanted to go and bring some good, you know, just some, some love and good cheer into their lives. And so one Mother's Day, he was visiting a nursing home, and he met a woman who really changed his life. And I'm going to share that story right now. I'm going to read it because it's so good, I don't want to miss any of it. He says, On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts, or into wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils over her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek, and it had pushed her nose to the side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was actually the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old and had been bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway, but I put a flower in her hand and I said, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it, and then she spoke, and much to my surprise, her words, though somewhat garbled, 
because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. And she said this, thank you, it's lovely, but can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, you know, I'm blind. I said, of course. And I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one and stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. It was then that it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder. And I would go to her with a pen and paper to write down the things she would say. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in ten directions at once with all of the things that I had to think about. The question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about? Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night. So I went to her and I asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? And she said, I think about my Jesus. I sat there and thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And then I asked her, what do you think about Jesus? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote. And this is what she said. I think of how good he has been to me. You know, he's been awfully good to me in my life. I'm one of those who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He is all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. This is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. I know. I knew her. How could she do it? Seconds ticked and minutes crawled, and so did days and weeks and months and years of pain without human company and without an explanation of why it was all happening. And she laid there and sang hymns. Isn't that powerful? Brethren, Mabel was more than an overcomer through Christ Jesus, right? She valued her knowledge of God. She was, she, she, because she experienced Christ, this so outweighed the temporary pain and suffering that she was going through. She really knew her God. And knowing God is far more incomparable good than anything else. That was Mabel's judgment. And I think God wants it to be ours as well. She really, really got that. And this leads us to a fourth point. God's purposes are not restricted to this life alone, but they spill over beyond the grave into eternal life. Paul puts it this way. He, he endured many hardships, and he said this, for our light, this is 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, right? 
So the bottom line is, brethren, this isn't all there is. This isn't all there is. And, and whatever it is we have to go through now will be more than recompensed in the age to come by far. Fifthly, because God's ultimate goal is actually that people would come to know him and live in his kingdom forever and experience eternal happiness, he will actually, I don't think he prefers to do that. In fact, I know he doesn't because Ezekiel says he takes no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked. And yet, he will sometimes deliberately bring or allow pain and suffering. Why? In order to save many more souls forever. God is actually thinking about that. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but it's really true. Now, if you look in in Psalms chapter 2, actually I'll come to that later, just to give us an example of that. We we know from the, the story of the Exodus, we know about the Egyptians, right? We understand that God... He really, he punished the Egyptians with plagues. Why? Because of the oppression and the slavery and the evil that they had done and they inflicted upon the Israelites for so many years. That was certainly one of the reasons we would think, right? And I think it was. I think you could make the argument that God was judging them. God was pouring out wrath on them because of the evil that they had done to his people. But did you know the scripture teaches an entirely additional reason, a very important one, which I think we often fail to realize. And that is, God actually brought plagues on the Egyptians in part so that many Egyptians would actually come to know him. That's right. So that Egyptians would get saved. That's one of the reasons why he punished them. Exodus 7.5 says this. God is talking about his plagues and he says this. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God is saying, a lot of Egyptians are going to come to know me when I do this. It's going to, it's going to radically affect where they're at, really forever, because of this. In, in Numbers 33, 4, God says this. He says, uh, or, it says in the scriptures, on their gods also the Lord executed judgment. Okay, so God executed judgment on the gods of Egypt. And it's interesting, we don't have time to get into it, but when you look at the plagues, those plagues were very strategic. They actually, in each case, each one of those plagues directly attacked and superseded the power of various deities in the Egyptian pagan belief system. God was essentially saying, these gods are no gods at all. They don't have any power at all. I have power over all of them. I am the only God essentially what he was telling the Egyptians in those plagues. God was actually communicating something to them in doing that. And it wasn't just the Egyptians. Exodus 12, 38 says this, a mixed multitude also went up with them, with the people of Israel. There were actually people from all different people groups who joined themselves to the nation of Israel to leave Egypt with them and to go follow the Lord. Isn't that amazing? We find out later in, in Numbers 12.1, uh, Moses ends up later on, he, he has a second wife, and she's a Cushite. Who's a Cushite? A Cushite is an Ethiopian. Moses married a black woman. <laughs> okay, but what does this show? This shows that God was rescuing and saving all kinds of people when he was pouring out these plagues on Egypt. 
This was not merely God in his wrath being mean or something. No, God, even then and always, has been interested in saving people and in rescuing people for eternity. It's interesting when you look at at history, we actually know around the time of the Exodus, suddenly, mysteriously, for about a generation, a lot of Egyptians became monotheists. It's very interesting. It's actually in history. And we see other, other examples of this throughout the scriptures. The book of Judges, the people fall into idolatry. What happens? They suffer all kinds of evil. They get attacked. I mean, stuff happens. What do they do? They repent and they turn back to the Lord, right? God, it's not like God was going, gee, I can't wait to punish them again. No, of course not. God's heart and desire, he takes no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked, right? He doesn't want to do that. He'd much rather just bless people for their entire life. But I'll tell you, push comes to shove, God loves us and he's going to fight for us and he's going to fight for our eternity and he's going to fight for unbelievers because he wants them to get saved. And if that means he's got to shake things up to get their attention, God will do it. It's just too important to him. He loves people way too much to just let them go on their merry way off to hell. God is not content with that. And so God intervenes regularly and allows stuff to happen to get people's attention. We see this happening again and again throughout the scriptures. Uh, And then we even see, this also explains sometimes why the people who love God suffer. You know, what happened in uh, in the book of Acts in regards to Stephen's persecution, it says in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. But then what happened because of that? They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then verse 4 says, those who were scattered went about doing what? Preaching the word. It led to the spread of the gospel. Chapter 11, verse 20 says, and some, some of who? Some of these people who were scattered because of Stephen's persecution, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Greeks also. They started speaking not just to the Jewish diaspora, but also to Gentiles, to people who were not Jewish. They began sharing the gospel with them. And a bunch of these Gentiles started getting getting saved as well. And that church, in turn, Paul and Barnabas get involved in that church, and eventually that church becomes the major sending church, sending out Paul and Barnabas' missionary team, taking the gospel throughout the world. All because of Stephen's persecution. I mean, it's it's amazing. So, So sometimes... As believers, we say, God, why am I going through this? And God is saying, because I want you to be a witness and a testimony to those around you who don't know me. We go through suffering and difficulty sometimes for that reason. Now, it's, it's not just, uh, just the church um, where this makes sense, but really, all around the world, <clears throat> in parts of the world where there is greater suffering and hardship in general, we tend to see Uh, greater uh, growth in the church. This is just a fact of history. I'll just throw out a few examples quickly. Uh, South Korea. Now, before I do that, I was going to read Psalm 2. Let me take a look at this. And this this actually states it. I want you to know this is biblical, okay? Take a look at Psalm 2. It says this. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. In other words, the world is saying, the world leaders of the world and many people in the world are going, we don't want God's rules. You know, it, because they don't know the Lord, 
it, God's ways just feel like a big wet blanket. Those of us who know the Lord, we love his commands. We delight in doing his will and, and following his ways. It's what we want to do. When we stumble and we fail, we, we get bummed, right? The world on the other time, a lot of times, gets bummed when God says this is the way it ought to be, right? And so they want to burst forth these bonds, right? He who sits in heaven, verse 4, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. It's funny to God. <laughs> verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Why? Because he wants to be mean? No, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, because God is serious about this, God wants an inheritance for the Son. In other words, he wants people to have eternal life and be in his eternal kingdom, and he wants them from every nation on earth, every people group on earth. So therefore, verse 10, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. What's the warning? Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God essentially says, here's your choice, world. I want to just pour out blessing on you. If you take refuge in me, blessings on the way. I'll bless that nation whose God is the Lord. If you resist me and you turn against me, I'm going to have to get your attention. Prefer not to do it, but I'm going to get an inheritance from all the nations. I want to save people. I want to rescue people from all the nations. I am not content to let it go as the status quo is. God is essentially saying he wants to rescue people. And so we see this throughout history. This has happened so many times, it's scary. I've literally documented well over 100 cases, and I'm sure there's many more. But I'll give you a few, just to throw out a few. South Korea, around 1900, there were no known Christians in, in Korea at this time. The first missionaries that we knew of start going to Korea. Okay, Now, there may have been some in you know, ancient, more ancient times, but at this point, it seemed like there was no church in Korea. So missionaries go to Korea. They're greeted by arrows. And so one of these missionaries writes home and says, They're clo everything's closed here, don't even bother coming. I mean, they were so hostile to the gospel, right? And after a good 40 years, there was very little fruit to show for it, only a handful of Korean believers. And then World War II happened, and they were occupied by the Japanese, and they got rescued by who? A bunch of foreigners, right? They hated Foreigners, they didn't want to listen to foreigners. They were very monolithic in their culture. And yet, foreigners rescue them from the Japanese. Then comes the Korean Civil War, right? The Korean War. And what happens? A lot of people who are opposed to communism get rescued again by foreigners. And what do they do? They start to open up to foreign ideas. And before you know it, they start listening to the missionaries. And lots of Koreans start to get saved. And before you know it, by the 1970s, the church is growing like gangbusters. And today, about half of the population in South Korea are born-again Christians. I mean, they per capita send out more missionaries than anybody else in the world. And then in Iran, the Islamic Revolution, 1979, there was a secular 
king before the Islamic Revolution hit Iran in 1979 and overthrew this secular king and set up an Islamic state. And great persecution broke out against the church. The church at that time only had a few thousand believers, literally four or five thousand believers in 1979. That was it. And, and I knew, I talked personally with one of the leaders in the church at that, well, he was a leader at that time. I talked to him 16 years later, but he told me at that time, he said it was really hard to get, any, to get a hearing for the gospel with any Iranian. It was hard to, to get any of them to pay any attention to the gospel. Oh, they just kind of put it off. And then when Islam took over, in force, I mean, they were majority Muslim before that, but I mean, when the Islamic State of Iran got established, the Islamic Republic, uh, people began to see, in his words, how ugly Islam really is. I mean, he, he, that's what he said. That's how he put it. And he said, we begin to see people opening up to the gospel like never before. And by the time I talked to him, he was talking about over 20,000 believers in a matter of about 15 years. Well, that trend has continued exponentially. Today, Today, there are estimates of, if you include the Iranian diaspora, of about a million Iranian believers, Muslim background believers, about a million. Because of why? Because of tremendous suffering and hardship that came on that nation. It opened them up to the gospel like never before. El Salvador in 1980, less than 2% of the population are evangelical believers. There's economic devastation due to a massive drop in the price of coffee. Many people who were doing okay are suddenly economically distraught and poverty spreads throughout the land. There's a, there's a civil war happens. It's a bloody civil war. It's horrible. It's terrible. Within 10 years by 1990, more than 20% of El Salvadorians are born-again Christians. Just saying. <laughs> Guatemala and Colombia have similar stories. China, 100 years of missions work. Very small Chinese churches, maybe in the tens of thousands. 1950, the last missionaries are kicked out. The communists kick out the last missionaries, and they double down on persecuting the Chinese church. So what happened? Today, we now see over 100 million Chinese Christians. The church became very indigenized under Chinese leadership. There are over 100 million born-again Chinese Christians in the nation of China today. Mao Zedong, in the words of P.J. Johnstone, church historian, said Mao Zedong became one of the greatest evangelists in world history when, when he imposed communism on the land. It led to the spread of the gospel. Tertullian in the second century put it this way. He said persecution is the seed of the church. Church grows out of it. It's amazing. Chinese church leader recently said, listen, you don't, don't pray for us to get comfortable. Just pray we endure. We pray for you guys because we know you guys are way too comfortable. We're praying for you. We're re- very concerned about the church in America. That's what a Chinese church leader said. He says it, we, it's way too apathetic. It's way too lukewarm. We're really praying for you guys that God will wake you guys up. Isn't that interesting? That's the perspective of this Chinese church leader. We've seen it with Al-Qaeda and terrorism in ISIS and in Syria and Iraq and the Middle East. There has been an unprecedented turning of thousands of Muslims in refugee camps to Christ, leaving Islam. Why? Because they're freaked out by ISIS. It bothers them immensely. And throughout North Africa, hundreds of, we're up to over hundreds of thousands of, of people coming to faith in Christ from a Muslim background throughout the Middle East. There's a harvest like never before in the Middle East. There have never been a harvest like this amongst Muslim peoples of the world. It's happening in an unprecedented way uh, and it's happening largely because of war and terrorism and Al-Qaeda and ISIS and all this garbage and civil war going on in the Middle East. 
that, that's leading to this great opening up of a great harvest amongst these people. So again, show me a region of the world where there's great poverty, disease, and hardship. I'll show you a part of the world where the gospel is growing much more rapidly than in the, con- than in the comfortable West. In, in places of the world that have tended to be very comfortable, there's been a real stagnation in the church. Hmm, maybe, just maybe, God has been patient with us and he's trying to get our attention. Even now, with COVID-19 in Iran, just got a report the other day from an agency that I support, Missions Agency. 85,000 prisoners have been released from jail in Iran because of COVID-19. Why? Because they're concerned that because of the close quarters, it's going to be disastrous. So they've released 85,000 prisoners. Amongst those 85,000 prisoners are hundreds and hundreds of Christians and many pastors. They've been set free from jail because of COVID-19. It's amazing, isn't it? Again, I'm not trying to claim COVID-19 is necessarily from God. We know that, but Satan, I'm sure, is mixed up in this, and we want to pray against it, and we want to pray for the end of it. And I think God is beginning to answer those prayers. But, but the fact of the matter is, God is not asleep at the switch when these things are going on. God is very actively advancing his kingdom. And we need to trust him that he is good and ultimately has a good plan for everything. Two final things. We'll, we'll wind it down. Number six, God is not indifferent to, su- to suffering and God in Christ voluntarily suffered immensely on our behalf. And Pastor Mike talked about this last week and I, I think I mentioned it the week before. I mean, God is not indifferent to our suffering. Not by any means is he indifferent. In fact, in many ways, you could make the argument God suffers more than anybody, not just in the person of Christ, but the fact that he knows the thoughts and the intents of every heart on the planet and the fact that he sees the hurt that people are doing to people that he loves all the time, God has got to be grieved by that all the time by the, by the evil stuff going on in the world. So God is not indifferent. God enters into our suffering. He is very engaged and very aware of the suffering and the, and the, and the, the evil and the pain in the world and it pains his heart. So much so, thank God, he's going to bring it to an end. Aren't you glad? And that's the seventh point. God will judge all the evil in the world with perfect justice, and he actually will eliminate evil from the age to come. That is a really important truth we've really got to get a hold of. Uh, the fact is that God is just, and he, so he, nobody's going to get away with anything, right? But ultimately, God will uh, bring evil to an end. It's not going to go on forever. I'm really glad. In fact, when, we're, when we've been there, you know, 10 billion years, you know, the longer that we're there on the other side of eternity, this age, I mean, the, the Bible talks about this life, it's like the blink of an eye. It's so brief. This suffering and the pain and the evil we see is very, very, very temporary. It may even be possible, and this is somewhat speculative, but it's entirely possible that part of the reason why God has allowed pain and suffering and evil is so that we and the angels will freely choose forever to never rebel against God. It could be that he just allowed this for a window of time so that those of us who chose the right way, we will have that so ingrained in us, we'll never even imagine it. We'll never even think about it. It's possible. It might be one of the reasons. Take a look at Revelation chapter 21. We're going to end with this scripture. 
John says this, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He... God's going to do this. Listen to what he's going to do. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Don't you love that? Jesus is going to wipe tears away from my eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water, of of the water of life, without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, many people have complained about that last part, and they've said, well, why couldn't God have just made it, you know, got rid of hell and not have hell? Well, hell, essentially, what is hell? Hell is the absence of God. It's all hell is. You see, the, the, the Bible teaches us that every good thing comes from God, James 1.17, literally every good thing. And, and the problem is a lot of unbelievers, they have a lot of good things in their life, but they don't recognize it's all tied into God. God is blessing them. That's why they enjoy good things. That's why they generally often like their lives because God is blessing them with all these good things. And they're going, they're indifferent to him and they're not interested in him. They don't want him. They don't want him. What is God to do? Is he going to force them to be with him forever? Is he going to force them to be with people who love him forever? They're not interested in him. They don't want to be there. They want to be apart from him. Now, they also don't want it to be a bad situation. They'd love to continue to have the good things they have now forever, right? That's what they'd really like. But the problem is, Everything good comes from God. If you willfully distance yourself from God and say, I don't want you, God respects people enough to say, okay. And he knows they have reached a point in their heart where they have hardened their heart and this is the way it's going to be. They will never want him. And so when that, when that point comes and they die, and they die without him, God says, okay, you've made your choice. You can spend forever without me. And he basically banishes them from his presence. And that is hell, because everything good goes with it. That is hell. And that's what God doesn't want people to experience. He so wants people to experience his love. It is not God's will that anyone should perish. And if you're here today and you're listening to this, and you're going, what must I do to be saved? I I don't want to perish. I, I do want to come to know God. How do I do that? What do I do? You need to realize that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay for your sins. 
God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is God's desire for you. And what you need to do is you need to repent and ask God to forgive you for your willful disobedience to him, your willful ignorance of him and just pushing away and your indifference to him, sometimes perhaps even hostility toward him. You need to repent of that and say, Lord, would you please forgive me for pushing you away? I want you to take over my life. I, I want to be rightly connected with you again. Forgive me of my sins. Right now, just pray with me. Father, just thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay for my sins. Thank you that I can be forgiven and thank you that you can take over my heart and my life and move me in a different direction now. Lord, I want to go in your direction. I want to go your way. And so I surrender my life to you now and I ask you to be my, my Lord, my leader and my Savior forever. Thank you that you didn't just die on the cross but that you rose again from the dead and you're alive again today so that I can come to know you and have eternal life because in you is eternal life. And I want to be rightly connected with you. And so I surrender my life to you right now. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.